Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. Welcome to the very first episode of the Gren Zone Dermatology Podcast. I'm so grateful that you found this podcast because you are going to learn a lot of clinically relevant dermatology and have fun doing it. That is my goal. So who am I? Again, I'm Logan Kolb. I'm from Plainview, Minnesota. It's a small town outside of Rochester. I went to the University of Wisconsin La Crosse for my undergrad studies in biology and chemistry. That was followed by medical school at Des Moines University College of Osteopathic Medicine, which was then followed by my internship at Larkin Community Hospital in South Miami before going on to finish my dermatology residency at Orange Park Medical Center in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm currently back home near Rochester, Minnesota, practicing dermatology at Olmsted Medical Center. With my free time, I enjoy playing guitar, riding in my Jeep with the top off, and just spending time with my wife Jenny, hiking and seeing live music and just exploring wherever we're living. And speaking of music, it is another passion of mine that I try to incorporate into these episodes. So the music you hear is all original music I played with former bands or from my friends in other local bands that make great music. So, I am very excited about this project and want to start with a little background and what inspired me to do it. But first, I need to give a few shout-outs. First, to my former program director, Dr. Karthik Krishnamurthy, for all his support and guidance. Next, to my former bandmate, Dan Thompson, and my brother, Garrett, for all their expertise in the editing and post-production for the podcast. And lastly, a shout-out to Dr. Steve Carroll of the EM Basic Podcast, whose emergency medicine podcast helped me out quite a bit in medical school and in inspired me to do this podcast. I listened to EM Basic frequently during my med school clinical rotations, and I loved Steve's chief complaint-based approach to clinical topics. Rather than writing episodes on COPD exacerbations, he wrote episodes based on how patients actually present to an ED, say with chest pain or shortness of breath, and then he went over pearls in the H&P and how to diagnose and treat patients. I used a lot of what I learned from his podcast in the ER and on the wards. Things I had listened to on my drive to the hospital helped me contribute to better patient care that same day. During my internship, I noticed there was nothing of this sort for dermatology, so I set out to make a dermatology podcast that helps students and interns interested in derm in the same fashion that the EM Basic podcast helped me. So, before we get to the introductory material, I want to shed some light on the Gren Zone name. What is it? In dermatology, the Gren zone is an interesting finding on histology where there's a completely normal band of papillary dermis sitting above a very inflamed dermis that can represent bad pathology like lymphomas or leprosy. But to us, it's more than just that. We see this Gren zone, this calm above the storm of inflammation, and it almost parallels the life of a medical professional like you and I. Some days in medical school, PA school, nursing school, residency, clinic, wherever, the storm can be so great that it's tough to find the calm. And we can't take excellent care of patients or ourselves unless we can rise above the inflammation and find that calm space. So how do you do it? Unfortunately, we don't have all the answers, but we can help you get there. It takes faith. Not only in yourself, but also in the training process and faith that the universe has put you exactly where you need to be. And then there's hard work. In order to find that calm, you need to be prepared. Prepared for tests, prepared for questions from your patients and from your attendings, and you need to be prepared for difficult clinical encounters. 
And this is where we come in. The content of this podcast is geared towards building a strong foundation in clinical dermatology and doing it in a fun and creative way. And thankfully, I have my great friend and former co-resident, Dr. Sean Schmieder, to help us do just that by playing different attendings and keeping us on our toes with some quiz questions to spice things up. Hello, I'm Dr. Grumpy Pants, and nothing makes me grumpier than idiotic students and residents marching around dreaming of a career in dermatology and not knowing a damn thing. Read until your eyes fall out, research until your brain is numb, work until your body can no longer function, then you have my permission to apply. Again, I want to give a big shout out to Sean for dedicating his valuable time away from his beautiful family at home in order to help out with this podcast. As far as this podcast content, it is not meant to be a board review course or an update in the latest and greatest for each disease that we'll discuss. I get my content from the major dermatology textbooks and major journals and then use them to cover the basics to build a foundation in derm. I will, however, occasionally hit on some in-depth details to keep my fellow residents or derm attendings engaged. And obviously, I know that dermatology is a very visual field, so I suggest looking through several online photos of the diseases that we discuss in each episode. At this point, I'm a little too busy to take time building a photo library, so I'm counting on you to do some Google searches of the lesions and rashes that we'll be discussing. Like the EM Basic podcast, I want to present the content in a chief complaint-based fashion, and then discuss pearls in the history, physical, workup, and management of our patients. I will start with a couple basic lectures and then dive into the reaction pattern to diagnosis, which will be discussed more thoroughly in episode 3. After that, episodes will be based on chief complaints such as inner trigo, hair loss, hypopigmented lesions, etc., or common conditions such as acne or non-melanoma skin cancer. Keep in mind that there is a ton of variation in how the diseases that we'll discuss are treated and how the treatments are monitored, so don't take what I mentioned as the end-all be-all. All right, so those are the ground rules, and with that, let's dive into the content of the first episode, the basic structure and function of the skin, hair, and nails. But before we do, I have to mention our disclaimer, that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. Okay, let's get started. In order to understand the thousands of diseases that occur in the skin, it is crucial to understand all of the little structures and cells that make up our skin and perform its vital functions of sensation, barrier functions, immune surveillance, and UV protection. In this episode, we will discuss the various cell types present in the skin, the anatomy of the hair follicle and nails, and end with a bonus section on the basics of dermatopathology terminology. But first, let's start with some fun facts about the skin. As you may already know, the skin is the largest human organ and makes up about 15% of a person's body weight on average. Diseases of nearly all internal organs can manifest as changes in the skin, so think of the skin as a canvas that paints a picture for what's going on internally. Skin cancer is the most common cancer worldwide and affects 1 in 5 people. Our skin is constantly being renewed with the epidermis turning over approximately every 40 to 56 days, causing the average person to shed 9 pounds of skin yearly. 9 pounds. Because of this, some estimate that about a half of the dust in our homes is actually dead skin. Mm, mm, mm. Skin thickness varies based on the anatomical location, age, and sex of the patient. 
with the epidermis being thickest on the palms and soles at around 1.5 millimeters, which is about the thickness of a penny, the epidermis is thinnest on the eyelids and the skin behind the ear at around 0.05 millimeters, which is about the thickness of everyday printer paper. The dermis is thickest on the back, while the subcutaneous tissue is obviously thickest on the fatty areas of the abdomen and buttocks. Male skin is generally thicker than female skin in all locations, and the skin is relatively thin in kids and then thickens as we reach our 30s and 40s before it thins out thereafter. Next, let's discuss the anatomy of the skin. Its basic structure from superficial to deep is the epidermis, the dermo-epidermal junction, aka the DEJ, the dermis, which itself has the superficial papillary layer and the deep reticular layer, and then the subcutaneous tissue. Welcome to the world of dermatology. I don't think you'll last very long here. Give me the four basic layers of the epidermis, and if you have half a brain, some of the keratins present in each one of these layers. From deep to superficial, the epidermal layers are the stratum basale, stratum spinosum, stratum granulosum, and the stratum corneum. The stratum basale, located just above the basement membrane, is composed of about 10% stem cells. From here, cells divide, flatten, and then lose their nuclei as they mature and move towards the surface of the skin. Keratins 5 and 14 are expressed in the basal layer and are mutated in patients with epidermolysis bullosa simplex. Again, Keratins 5 and 14 are expressed in the basal layer and are mutated in patients with epidermolysis bullosa simplex. Go on, my ears aren't bleeding just yet. Superficial to the stratum basale is the stratum spinosum, which is named as such because of the spiny appearing desmosomes which help keratinocytes adhere to each other. Keratins 1 and 10 are expressed in this layer and are mutated in epidermolytic hyperkeratosis. Again, Keratins 1 and 10 are expressed in the stratum spinosum and are mutated in epidermolytic hyperkeratosis. Just north of the stratum spinosum is the stratum granulosum, which appears darker purple on H&E due to the dense keratohyaline granules. This layer produces the cornified cell envelope, which is composed of lipids and cross-linking proteins that help the skin function as a mechanical and water barrier. The stratum granulosum thickens with scratching and rubbing, as in lichen planus. The next epidermal layer that is only present on the palms and soles is the stratum lucidum, which appears as a thin, clear strip on H&E. And then finally, the outermost layer of the epidermis is the stratum corneum, where keratinocytes have eventually lost their nuclei and organelles and are known as corneocytes. The stratum corneum serves as a barrier, helping to keep the good stuff in, such as water, and the bad stuff out, such as bacteria and allergens. The stratum corneum structure is analogous to bricks and mortar with the corneocytes acting as bricks which are embedded in the mortar of lipids such as ceramides, which can be deficient in atopic dermatitis patients. It is important to remember that both the stratum corneum and granulosum are not present on our mucosa, such as the inside of your cheek. For this reason, we can tell that a biopsy came from, say, the inside of the mouth without even looking at the biopsy requisition form. You look like you like to go out on the town with your tight pants and your wavy hair. If I was throwing a party and inviting the four major cell types in the epidermis, who would I be calling? The four major cell types in the epidermis include the keratinocytes, melanocytes, 
Langerhans cells, and Merkel cells. Keratinocytes, also known as squamous cells and epidermal cells, make up most of the epidermis and produce keratin, which is the structural protein in the stratum corneum, hair, and nails. Fun fact, keratin is also the major protein present in snake scales. Keratohyalin is the soft, flexible version of keratin that is also present in the skin but lacking in the hair and nails. And then there's melanocytes, which are the neural crest-derived cells that are present in a ratio of approximately 1 per 10 basal keratinocytes. Melanocytes function in synthesizing and secreting pigment granules called melanosomes, which end up at the end of long dendritic processes of melanocytes that are phagocytosed by keratinocytes. Picture a melanocyte as a fat apple tree with the apples being the melanosomes that are located at the end of the long dendritic branches, and a deer being the keratinocyte walks up and eats or phagocytoses one of those apple melanosomes. So again, keratinocytes phagocytose the melanosomes that are made by the melanocytes. As far as diseases of the melanocytes, remember that they are presumably destroyed by an autoimmune process in vitiligo patients. Or, while we're on the topic of melanocytes, tell me, why do people with darker skin types have darker skin? Different races and skin types actually have the same amount of melanocytes, but differ in the number, size, type, and distribution of melanosomes, with fair skin types having more lighter-colored pheomelanin and darker skin types having more of the dark eumelanin. Alright, we've talked keratinocytes and melanocytes in the epidermis, so the next cell type are the Langerhans cells. They consist of 3-5% of the cells in the stratum spinosum, are derived from bone marrow, and function as antigen-presenting cells. Okay, let's see if you've ever opened a dermatopathology textbook. Give me four stains that could be used to identify Langerhans cells. Langerhans cells stain with S100, CD1A, Vimentin, and Langerin. Again, Langerhans cells are antigen-presenting cells and stain with S100, CD1A, Vimentin, and Langerin. They also contain Burbeck granules, which appear on electron microscopy as tennis racket-shaped organelles. It is important to know that ultraviolet radiation decreases the number of Langerhans cells, which can partially explain the mechanism behind PUVA and narrowband UVB in decreasing the inflammation in psoriasis, for example. Then we have the Merkel cells, which are located just above the basal layer of the epidermis and in the bulge region of the hair follicles. They are believed to function as slow-adapting touch receptors through two connections, one with nerve axon terminals and two with adjacent keratinocytes via desmosomes. Merkel cells give rise to Merkel cell carcinoma, which is a rare, aggressive skin cancer that is classically seen on the head and neck of elderly Caucasian patients. Besides keratinocytes, melanosomes, Langerhans cells, and Merkel cells, Some other miscellaneous cell types in the epidermis are the stem cells that are located at the base of the reedy ridges and at the hair bulge, along with a variety of inflammatory cells including neutrophils, lymphocytes, mast cells, and the big eaters known as macrophages, which will be discussed in other relevant lectures. So that covers the basics of the epidermis. The next layer is the dermoepidermal junction, also known as the DEJ, which holds the epidermis and underlying dermis together using a variety of proteins such as BP antigens 1 and 2. 
which we'll cover more in depth in the Subepidermal Blistering podcast. I know your head is spinning, but in fact, we've just been scratching the surface. Perhaps let's dive a little deeper and have you tell me the two layers of the dermis and what lies in each. Deep to the epidermis and underlying DEJ is the dermis, which has a superficial papillary layer and a deeper reticular layer. The papillary dermis appears wavy in 2D on biopsy specimens. However, in real 3D life, the epidermis and papillary dermis lock together like an egg crate. The downward projections of the epidermis are referred to as the reedy ridges. The papillary dermis contains the subpapillary plexus, which contains arterioles, capillaries, venules, lymphatics, and nerves. Remember that these nerve fibers are affected by inflammation in leprosy patients leading to hypoesthesia. Also remember that the papillary dermis contains Meissner corpuscles which sense touch and pressure. Then there's the deeper reticular dermis, which also has its own plexus but contains larger blood vessels. A clinical correlation to these anatomic levels is the Clark's levels for melanoma staging, where level 1 is in situ in the epidermis, level 2 reaches the papillary dermis, whereas level 3 fills the papillary dermis. Clark's level 4 reaches the reticular dermis, and level 5 invades the subcutaneous tissue. Clark's levels have largely been replaced by Breslow's depth, which measures tumor depth in millimeters from the granular layer or the base of an ulcerated melanoma to the bottom of the tumor. Okay, well, you seem to get sidetracked easily. Consistent with your generation, no doubt. The attention span of a tsetse fly. Give me some of the cell types in the dermis. The dermis is composed of fibroblasts, collagen, elastic fibers, ground substance, the adnexa, blood vessels, lymphatics, and nerves. Fibroblasts produce collagen, elastin, and ground substance. For boards, remember that collagen makes up 70% of the dry weight of skin. Collagen is also made up of protein, so remember that patients with wounds need adequate protein intake to facilitate their wound healing. Type 1 collagen is the most prevalent in the dermis, whereas type 3 collagen, aka fetal collagen, is more pliable and is present in granulation tissue in those healing wounds. As wounds heal, this type 3 collagen is replaced by the stronger type 1 collagen. Oh, fetal collagen, similar to your fetal brain. Just tell me two external factors that downregulate collagen synthesis. Remember that collagen 1 and 3 synthesis is downregulated by corticosteroids, which makes sense because it explains atrophy as the side effect, and collagen synthesis is also inhibited by UV light leading to photoaging. Thankfully, collagen synthesis is upregulated by retinoic acid, which explains the anti-aging effect of retinoids. So besides producing collagen, fibroblasts also make the elastic fibers in the dermis, which obviously help its elasticity. These elastic fibers decrease in number with aging, contributing to the saggy appearance and wrinkles in the skin. Remember that elastic fibers are also defective in Marfan syndrome due to fibrillin-1 mutations. The next component of the dermis made by fibroblasts is the ground substance, which consists of glycosaminoglycans and mucopolysaccharides, which are also known as mucin. 
An example of a glycosaminoglycan is hyaluronic acid, which functions to maintain water within the dermis and is often used in many fillers that are used in cosmetic dermatology. You're so focused on the hyaluronic acid in your significant other's lips. Why don't you tell me some endogenous structures in the dermis? The adnexal structures are also located in the dermis and consist of hair follicles and their associated sebaceous and aprocrine glands, along with the erector pili muscle. The erector pili muscle is what contracts when we're cold to make goosebumps. Eccrine glands, which are not associated with the hair follicle, are also present in the dermis and make our sweat. Then lastly, the dermis contains blood vessels, lymphatics, and nerves which contribute to the dermis's function in temperature regulation and sensation. The final layer of the skin is its deepest layer, the subcutaneous layer which is also known as the sub-Q or paniculus. Americans have plenty of panis to throw around, so what is it actually good for? The subcutaneous layer is composed of lipocytes and fibrous septa containing collagen and larger blood vessels and nerves. It functions as an energy store, an insulator that protects underlying muscles and bones, and as an endocrine organ where aromatase converts androstenedione to estrone. So to quickly summarize these layers of the skin going from superficial to deep, you have the epidermis, which consists of the stratum corneum, the stratum granulosum, which makes the cornified cell envelope, the stratum spinosum, and lastly the stratum basali. The main epidermal cell types are the keratinocytes, melanocytes, Langerhans cells, and Merkel cells. Then deep to the epidermis is the dermoepidermal junction containing the basement membrane. And then we have the dermis, which consists of the papillary dermis containing the subpapillary plexus. And then the deeper reticular dermis with its larger blood vessels. And lastly, the subcutaneous fat. Now let's shift gears and talk about the adnexa, which refers to skin appendages such as the eccrine and apocrine glands, along with the pilosebaceous unit. Eccrine glands are our sweat glands that release sweat to help regulate body temperature by cooling the skin when the sweat evaporates. I love a nice rendezvous in the sauna. So when I'm in there with my colleagues, sweating like pigs at a feast, where is the sweat not coming from? Eccrine glands are located nearly everywhere on the skin, except for the lips, the external auditory canal, the gland's penis, and the labia minora and clitoris. Again, eccrine glands are located nearly everywhere on the skin, except for the lips, the external auditory canal, the gland's penis, and the labia minora and clitoris. Fun fact, the total mass of eccrine glands in our body is about the same as one kidney and can make up to 1.8 liters of sweat in an hour. Judging by your current rate of perspiration, I bet you could pump out three liters in 20 minutes. It is important to remember for eccrine glands that, unlike sebaceous and apocrine glands, eccrine glands are not associated with the hair follicle. Eccrine glands also have muscarinic acetylcholine receptors, which bind acetylcholine released from sympathetic nerves. This explains why we sweat when we're nervous. Our sympathetic nerves are activated, Release acetylcholine, which then binds receptors on our eccrine sweat glands, and voila, we're a sweaty mess. And why is this important to know? Knowing about the presence of these muscarinic acetylcholine receptors on eccrine glands explains why botulinum toxin injections, which block acetylcholine release, are effective for hyperhidrosis patients. And next are the apocrine glands. 
you should be an expert on this next topic because you smell like a sheepdog that hasn't had a bath in weeks. Where do we find apocrine glands and why do their secretions give us the pleasant aroma of body odor that you must be so familiar with? I like to remember this by thinking of the four A's, the axilla, areola of the nipple, the anogenital region, and the auditory canal where they contribute to earwax formation. Again, think of the apocrine glands on the four A's, the axilla, areola of the nipple, the anogenital region, and the auditory canal. In addition to these locations, apocrine glands also make up the mall's glands of the eyelids. In general, apocrine glands secrete a variety of proteins, carbohydrates, ammonia, lipids, and iron. These secretions are odorless on secretion, but they can be digested by bacteria to create byproducts that cause body odor. Apocrine glands begin to function at puberty and are mainly stimulated by sympathetic adrenergic stimuli. And next up, sebaceous glands. Since they are associated with hair follicles, they are located everywhere except the palms and soles, which are hairless. Sebaceous glands form sebum, which is composed mostly of triglycerides along with wax esters, squalene, and free fatty acids. Sebum is implicated in acne when it does not reach the skin surface, but instead pools underneath the surface in pustules and comedones. For sebaceous glands, it is important to remember that they are under hormonal influence rather than the neurologic influence as is seen with eccrine and apocrine glands. Next, let's discuss the hair follicle and invite our friend Dr. Grumpy Pants in for some quick stats on the hair. Okay, well, I haven't read dermatology for idiots in years, but to save your future patients from the inevitable pain that they will experience, I'll give you a few stats. Humans contain 5 million hairs on average, the majority of which are fine, vellus baby hairs. On average, people have 100,000 hairs on the scalp and lose 100 scalp hairs daily. You blondies have thicker hair with 120,000 hairs on the scalp, whereas the redheads have approximately 80,000 hairs. The hair on the scalp grows roughly one centimeter a month, which can be helpful for patients with head lice, where the distance of nits from the scalp can estimate the length of time with infestation. Hair color depends on melanocytes and the hair bulb transferring melanosomes, which are pigment granules, to the keratinocytes in the bulb matrix. Darker hair has mostly eumelanin, whereas blonde or red hair has more pheomelanin. Then the gray hairs that you and your comrades cause me to produce are due to fewer melanocytes being present in the hair bulb, thus producing less total pigment. Alright, thanks Dr. G. Now let's take some time to discuss the basic anatomy of the hair from deep to superficial. Again, it will be helpful to view pictures and diagrams online to visualize this. The deepest portion of the hair is the bulb, which produces the hair shaft. For anagen hairs, which are growing hairs, this bulb is located in the deep dermis and superficial sub-Q. Therefore, in surgery, we want to undermine beneath these hair bulbs to avoid causing hair loss in, say, the eyebrows or the beard area. Moving superficially from the hair bulb, we have the erector pili muscle insertion site, known as the bulge. Next, there's the sebaceous gland insertion site, and then most superficially is the apocrine gland insertion site. I remember that apocrine is above the sebaceous insertion. So again, the deep portion of the hair follicle is the bulb, and then moving superficially, we have the erector pili insertion site at the bulge, then the sebaceous gland insertion, 
and then the apocrine insertion, which is above the sebaceous gland insertion site. Again, why are these important? We use these landmarks to describe the three zones of the hair follicle, the infundibulum, the isthmus, and the inferior segment. Now, starting at the surface and moving deep, the most superficial zone is the infundibulum, which extends from the skin's surface down to the insertion of the sebaceous gland. The infundibulum is the location of inflammation in lichen planal pilaris, aka LPP. The second zone deep to the infundibulum is the isthmus, spelled I-S-T-H-M-U-S. The isthmus, which starts at the insertion site of the sebaceous gland and goes down to the bulge where the erector pili muscle inserts. I have to admit, all of this bulge and insertion talk is making me feel a bit uncomfortable. The isthmus is the site of inflammation in discoid lupus. I remember that discoid is deep when compared to LPP, which is at the superficial infundibulum. Then the third and deepest zone of the hair follicle is the inferior segment, which are the structures deep to the erector pili insertion site. Okay, you may know the hair shaft from top to bottom, but do you know it inside and out? I'll briefly mention the layers of the hair follicle from outside to inside, which are the glassy membrane, the outer root sheath, the inner root sheath, which itself has three layers, the Henle layer, which surrounds the Huxley layer, remember that Henle hugs Huxley, and then the innermost cuticle of the inner root sheath. Moving inward from the inner root sheath, we then have the hair shaft itself, which is made up of the outer cuticle, which gives hair its shine when you use conditioner, for example, and then inside of that we have the hair shaft cortex, and then the innermost hair shaft medulla. So rapid fire, those hair follicle layers from outside to in are the glassy membrane, the outer root sheath, the inner root sheath, which is composed of Henley's layer, Huxley's layer, and the innermost cuticle. Then interior to the inner root sheath is the hair shaft itself made of its outer cuticle, cortex, and inner medulla. Enough talk about anatomy. Describe the actual process of hair growth. The three phases of hair growth are the anagen, catagen, and telogen phases. Anagen phase refers to active growth. Normally, 85-90% to 90 of scalp hairs are in anagen phase, which lasts 2-6 to six years on average. Chemotherapy fractures only anagen hairs because they are actively growing and take up the chemotherapy which targets rapidly growing cells. This hair loss pattern from chemo is referred to as anagen effluvium. The next phase is catagen phase, also known as involution phase. Less than 1% of scalp hairs are in catagen phase at any given time due to its short length of approximately 2 weeks. Then the third and final stage is telogen phase, also known as resting phase. It lasts 3-5 to five months and thus 10-15% to 15 of hairs are in telogen phase in a normal patient. In the condition known as telogen effluvium, there is early cessation of anagen phase so that greater than 20% of hairs are in telogen phase. Therefore, in telogen effluvium patients, we see hair loss approximately 3-5 to five months after a trigger such as an emotionally stressful event, severe illness, or pregnancy. Next, we will briefly discuss nails. Their primary function is to protect the tips of our fingers and toes from trauma. They are helpful in dermatology because specific nail changes are caused by a variety of conditions including psoriasis, alopecia areata, renal disease, and liver disease, amongst others.
I don't know why it's now acceptable for a man to receive a pedicure, but no matter, just tell me how long it takes a fingernail or a toenail to grow out. Our fingernails grow two to three millimeters per month on average and take four to six months to regrow its entire length. Toenails, on the other hand, grow approximately one millimeter per month and take 12 to 18 months to regrow. This is helpful because you can usually predict the timing of a lesion or defect based on the millimeters that it is from the cuticle. Now let's take a quick minute to discuss nail anatomy, and it will obviously be helpful to refer to labeled diagrams online to clear up any confusion. So first we have the nail plate, which is the hard part that we think of as the nail itself. The lateral nail fold is the skin abutting the lateral sides of the nail plate, whereas the proximal nail fold is the skin proximal to the cuticle. The cuticle, also known as the eponychium, is a thin, cornified epithelium overlying the lunula. The lunula is the white crescent-shaped region underneath the proximal nail plate, which represents the distal nail matrix. Again, the lunula is the white crescent-shaped region underneath the proximal nail plate that represents the distal nail matrix. The nail matrix is also underneath the cuticle and proximal nail fold. So let's mention those structures again real quick. The cuticle is the thin epithelium that overlies the lunula, where the lunula is the white crescent-shaped region underneath the proximal nail plate that represents the distal nail matrix. Then the nail matrix is what forms the nail plate. It is also important to note that the proximal matrix forms the top or dorsal nail plate, while the distal matrix forms the bottom or underside of the nail plate. The nail matrix contains melanocytes, therefore melanomas can form in this location. Then the last structure that we'll mention is the nail bed, which is underneath the nail plate, is distal to the lunula, and does not contain melanocytes. Alright, the last section of this episode will discuss the basic terminology used in dermatopathology to describe biopsy findings and patterns. Acanthosis represents hyperplasia or thickening of the epidermis and is seen in hyperproliferative conditions such as psoriasis. Spongiosis is swelling and edema of the epidermis. If you can see the spiny desmosomes between the cells under the microscope, it is safe to say that sponge is present, which is seen in eczematous processes. Perikeratosis represents a thickened stratum corneum with nuclei present, whereas hyperkeratosis is a thickened stratum corneum without nuclei present. Hypergranulosis refers to thickening of the granular layer and may be seen in lichen planus. Papillomatosis refers to multiple finger-like warty projections of the epidermis, while atrophy refers to thinning of a layer of a skin, such as epidermal atrophy seen in lichen sclerosis. All right, my friends, that does it for the first episode of this podcast. I know it's not the most exciting content, but it's super important to know, and trust me, the content will get better after the introductory material, so don't go giving up on me too soon. I will typically end the episodes by summing up the highlights, but since this is a relatively long podcast episode, I'll just recommend that you re-listen to the parts that you need to brush up on. I'm not one for mnemonics. So remember, Henley hugs Huxley. Like, you better go home and hug your textbook tonight. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. 
I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.